Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a message that is near and dear to my heart because I personally do not drink. And if you think drunk driving is no big deal, you couldn't be more wrong. You could get in a crash, people could get hurt or killed, and you could get arrested, incur huge legal expenses, or even lose your job. So next time you plan on drinking, make sure you plan ahead. Designate a sober driver or use a ride service to get home safely. Please drive sober or get pulled over. Merch Table was founded by artists just like you. We've slept on floors, played for everyone and no one, broken up, gotten back together, and taken everything we learned along the way to build a group of people who put creativity first so you can play while we work. Visit MerchTable.com to learn more about our merchandising and online store solutions. Hello, hello, everybody. How are you doing? I'm Ray Harkins. You're listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast, obviously, because you're smart and you've downloaded this or streamed this on whatever provider you are using. I'm curious because, you know, people get in their, their rhythms with listening to podcasts. Like, I would love to know how you listen to podcasts. Email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Just a super informal, I wouldn't even call it a survey. But, uh, you know, just uh, I, I like to know that information because if everyone is like, oh, yeah, I only listen to it on Spotify, it's like, oh, wow. OK, that's the that's the main player of choice. So anyways, thank you very much for all of the well wishes that you sent on social media, emails, whatever you have to reach out to me, whatever capabilities you have. Last week's show was awesome. It's been seven years and I feel very thankful and grateful that this thing has existed for as long as it has and frankly has found it's footing within the context of the uh, ecosystem of punk and hardcore and all that other stuff because um, I don't know if it, it just it feels so good to be like I am I am documenting these people's stories and I am sharing them widely with anybody who is interested in uh, these people's stories and I just I don't know I love it man I feel really really good about it so thank you very much it's very very sincere heartfelt thanks from me to you the listener okay you also need to know about the guest this week right. Lance Wells, he is the vocalist for Las Vegas hardcore band called Faded Gray. They, uh, you know, were never exactly the biggest band, but they were very impactful to a, you know, specific subset of people that started to come up in the scene, you know, like late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, Faded Gray, they only put out one LP on uh, Indecision Records, but uh, that LP is, it's, it smokes, man. It is so good. And Lance, I became friendly with once we started to play shows together, and he was just uh, just a, a sweetheart to me through and through. Very kind individual, and he's kind of the the elder statesman, as it were, of the Las Vegas hardcore scene. And uh, I went over to his house. We hung out when I was out there on vacation in early July, and uh, it was it was so good. He's a, he, not only a very thoughtful person, but uh, has an interesting life story. So yeah, that's that is what I get to share to you in a moment. 
But I have to send some special shout outs to Doom and Plume. For those of you who are listening to the show, you are hearing a new theme song. And that is by my friend, Eugene Kim. Thank you very much, Eugene. And his project called Doom and Plume. I love the music. Kind of gave him a direction. He went off with it and just made the beautiful, beautiful song that you hear. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much, Eugene, for making that uh, that contribution to the show. I really appreciate that. And uh, what else has been happening to me? Well, I was uh, in New York for like 36 hours last week, so there was that. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, not, not much else, man. I'm just knee-deep in the new work life and uh, understanding what it's like to work for a massive, massive corporation like iHeartMedia. It's, uh, it's, it's so big. It's crazy. It's exciting. Um, you know, it's scary in certain respects. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, like there's this big thing that I work for now. But, uh, ultimately I feel very grateful and excited and grateful and excited that podcasting has led me here. Like this very medium has given me a living for many, many years of my life. And I can't be more thankful for that. So anyways, let's talk to Lance. Okay. That's what we're going to do. That's why you came to the show. So here, here's Lance. So I, uh, I can almost guarantee you that you don't remember this, but if you do, that's awesome. So I remember, uh, I got at vinyl solution in Huntington beach. I got the curl up and die demo and the faded gray demo because you guys had either separately like came out there, whatever, but both, <laughs> both of the demos existed there. Mm-hmm. And so I bought both of them cause they both were labeled like, you know, bands from Vegas. And I was like, my hometown that I was born. I was like, well, this is weird. I didn't know that there was a scene out there. And so I bought the demos, loved both of them. And then emailed the email addresses on both of them just to be like, I hadn't, there was no real reason beyond just like, Hey, I play in a band in Southern California and I got these and I'm from Vegas and I really like you guys. And so I emailed you and I'm almost positive that it was, I mean, it was like what faded gray at AOL.com. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I remember you responded and it was one of those things like, obviously I did not know you prior to that. I did not know about tomorrow's gone or anything like that. Um, but then just the the way in which you responded very much was just like, it was a, it wasn't just like a simple, like, cool. Thanks for checking it out. It was like a very, you're like, I'm glad that you found this here. Like I, like I would like to engage with you. And at that point I was just like, oh, this is rad. Cause I mean, whatever. At that time I was like maybe 17, 18, like taking it, started playing around, but not a ton. And it was just the way in which you responded. I was like, oh, this is like, this is thoughtful. Like, I mean, I couldn't articulate it back then, <laughs> but yeah. it was one of those things where I'm sure that, I mean, from what I know about you, you've always struck me as that person where it's just like the conversations that I have and like the, the sort of interactions that I have, you you seem to think about them in ways that I think maybe other people don't like, you know, people are thoughtful, but it seems like you've always been the sort of person that's like, no, like I, I, I take this stuff, like this interpersonal communication seriously. Like, is, is that me reading way too much into it? Or is that something that you kind of just are as a person? No, I mean, of course I was always flattered and humbled whenever anyone liked our band. Sure. And, I mean, for me personally, the music was always sacred, a sacred thing, you know, Mm -hmm. we wanted it to be personal. Um, I know how I would want someone to react from another band (laughs) if I tried to interact with them. So I always tried to uphold that standard for myself. Sure. Um, we always tried to make our band for everyone. You know, there were so many labels within the scene and especially with faded gray, 
that's one thing I tried to do was make it a band free of any labels. Right. You know, some of us at the time were straight edge. Some of us were vegetarian. But those topics never really came up in the lyrics. I mean, some of the lyrics were like socio-political type mm-hmm. lyrics. But we tried to make it something that everyone could relate to. Sure. And no matter who you were, if you came and talked to us, we tried to interact right. with you in a positive way. Cause, sure. I mean, isn't that what punk and hardcore is all about? Is all And especially in Vegas, I mean, the scene here was so diverse with so many just random right. misfits and riffraff. Like, yeah. We just, I mean, we had to include everyone. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it was cool because people got turned on to a lot of cool stuff and we did too stuff that we norm like the guys in fade of gray we normally wouldn't have been into or people we wouldn't have interacted with we got a chance to so right yeah you use the i mean that's what as i became aware of of vegas's you know rich history within the context of you know punk and hardcore and diy it, it it became apparent to me where it's like, oh yeah, like because there's no, I mean, the the bedrock of all of those scenes is obviously places to play, and there's never been a place to play in Vegas that's prolonged over you know three to five years. It's always that cycle of like, oh yeah, you play Sound Barrier and then all that goes away. <laughs> you remember? I presume you remember that venue, the Castle. Yeah, the, <laughs> I believe we played with you guys. At I the think we did. Yeah, Curl Up and Die, Taken, and maybe Countervale. That sounds about right. Yep. <clears throat> And I, and so like, but then getting to know all of that, it's like, there's no way that you couldn't, you could be, um, you know, exclusive with who you are having, like who are you playing shows with? You're just like, there's not a ton of us. So we just got to kind of all figure this out together. Yeah. And it's funny you say that, like our pr- band prior to Fade of Grey was Tomorrow's Gone mm-hmm. and the scene was even weirder when Tomorrow's Gone existed. Right. I mean, it was just like a. I can't even explain it, but Tomorrow's Gone was like one of the only like hardcore bands, like sure, like a Revelation style hardcore band, totally at, at that time. But we got along great with everyone. I mean, the shows were mostly desert shows mm-hmm. powered by generators because, like you said, it was so hard to do all ages shows in a club for the longest time. Sure, and most of the time, the promoters or people who ran clubs were just in it for money, you know, yeah, they weren't bags, supporting us. Yeah. They didn't do it legit. So they get shut down. Sure. But I mean, that, that taught us a lot about DIY, just grab a generator and go out in the desert to find a good spot. Right. And plug in and play. And it's the older guys that came before us that taught, that us taught that. you how to yeah, do Yeah. You know, there was, we kind of caught the tail end of that 80 scene mm-hmm. and tomorrow's gone. Those guys, there was a band called Schizoid and a band called FSP, and there was, you know, other bands, but those were the two most popular bands. Mm -hmm. And they kind of went from the late 80s into the early 90s a little bit. So we caught the tail end of that and kind of showed us the way, I guess you could say. Sure. And then we took that and just ran with it. Right. And then even when the Curl Up and Die kids, you know, that that next wave of kids came around. Mm Mm-hmm we kind of showed them, hey, all you got to do is get a generator and, and find the, an yeah. abandoned building or a cave or a retention basin and right. put a flyer out and go for it. So It's still, it, I mean, to this day, like, I mean, obviously you've toured, I've toured, and we've seen a bunch of different scenes exist. Still to this day, 
I don't think I've encountered a scene that does the general, you know, like even in whatever, like Albuquerque and these other desert communities, I still have never seen the sort of like generator show idea. I mean, you know, I'm sure it does, but like, I just always was like, wait, so you get a generator and just go to the middle of the desert and you play a show, you know, there's like 50 people there and it's just like, <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because we basically did it out of necessity sure. and we, there came a time where we were just over it. We're like, man, we want to play a show in a club. <laughs> we would like, be indoors, right? <laughs> but bands from out of town would come through and I remember Strike Anywhere. We did a desert show for them. Mm-hmm. We did a desert show for Stay Gold. And just a couple others. Sure. And those bands, every time I see those guys now to this day, like I just saw the guys from Strike Anywhere played here last year. Oh, sure. And they're like, dude, that desert show. I'm like, yeah, it was cool. Right. Like, man. We, we still think yeah, about it. Yeah, we want to play in the desert. <laughs> I'm like, well. Well, there's, I, I, don't, I don't really have the time or the effort to do that as much as I once did. <laughs> but yeah. yeah that, and then there was, the, there was actually caves. They've since been imploded. They okay. were over on the west side of town. There's a water park over there, Wet mm-hmm. and Wild. Wet and Wild, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they were in the hills just above Wet and Wild. Oh, and wow. Used to, I mean, the edge of town used to be rainbow. Right. And you'd have to drive like three miles down this dirt road and then up to these caves. Sure. And there'd just be a huge bonfire and bands playing. And I mean, it was like a big party. Everybody was drinking. There's probably totally. a keg and yeah, yeah. whatever. But yeah, the, Tomorrow's Gone would play out there. And That's funny. And but uh, Boba Fett Youth was around that time as well, right? Or was that towards like the tail end of Tomorrow's Gone? Or was No, that- yeah. Tomorrow's Gone and Boba Fett Youth were kind of the exact same time. Okay, that's like, what I thought. Probably. I think Tomorrow's Gone... Our first show was 93 or 94, mm-hmm. and yeah, Boba Fett Youth. I mean, we, that was pretty much like our brother band. Sure, you guys a, always played Did together. a short tour with them. Uh, Boyd from Boba Fett Youth, he did the record label that put out the Boba Fett Youth album in the 7-inch. Sure. Put out a couple other Vegas bands. He did a, a compilation that had Tomorrow's Gone on it. Okay. And he was another one that kind of showed us the way through touring, like he, you know, Boba Fett was going on tours. I went on a winter tour with them in 95, I think it was. Okay. And I mean, this was obviously pre-internet. I think we had that, still had that MRR, book your own fucking life. Of course. The Bible. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, man, that was my first time on tour, and it was just after it was over, I said... And you were well, doing, like, merch, I presume? Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, just yeah, general, pretty, general pretty much out. just hanging out, yeah. <laughs> free ride around the West Coast. <laughs> totally, totally. But uh, it made me want to do it with my own band. Sure. So, yeah, you saw, you saw like, oh, wow, like, this is cool, and I see how you can kind of put this together. Yeah, sometimes you do need that, I guess, taste, or just, like, observation point of being like, oh, I see how they put this together. And it, even, it doesn't have to be you going on the tour but it, you can just start to see other people around you do it. And you're like, oh, so that's how you put that together. Exactly. It's the only way you can learn. Yeah. Um, we'll get we'll get back to a lot of that. But you, focusing on you, were you born and raised in Vegas? I was actually born in Iowa. Oh, okay. Oh, I, I think I did know that at some point. But yeah, so you were born in Iowa. Yeah, I was born in Iowa. Um, lived there till I was five years old. Okay. Um, all of my relatives are pretty much in Iowa and Missouri. Okay. Um, my dad was a corrections officer okay. for Iowa Department of Prisons and was just looking for uh, more pay, you know, better opportunity, sure. chance for promotions, and that wasn't happening in Iowa. So 
we ended up in Nevada. Got it. Yeah. So Always he, need corrections officers in Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he moved us all the way, pretty much halfway across the country. Sure. In the Midwest. Um, we moved to Boulder City. Okay. Which is a small town, for those that don't know, about yep. 30 miles outside of Vegas. Coming from small town Iowa, I think my parents wanted to keep us in a small town. Sure. And it's also the only city in Nevada where gambling is illegal. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I knew that's yeah, you're right. I don't think I considered that. But yeah, yeah. it's you know, it's the town that Hoover Dam built. Right. Put it in quotes. Um, All the workers that built the dam. It was basically a camp for Mm -hmm. them in the 30s. And then it just kind of grew a little bit from there. Sure. They try to keep it small town that, you know, they have very tight growth restrictions. Got it. And like I said, gambling is illegal. So it's not like when you walk into the grocery store, there's a bunch of slot machines. Yeah, Yeah, video poker machines yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and every convenience store and whatnot. So. Right. So what was your, uh, what's your family structure like? Like, obviously, like you said, you know, everybody moved from, from Iowa, but you know, brothers and sisters, mom and dad, obviously both in the picture. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty typical childhood. Um, I have one brother. Okay. He's two years younger than me. His name's Ryan. Got um, it. so being two years apart, we were always together and always yeah. into the same stuff. Um, we grew up playing with Star Wars toys and G.I. Sure. Joes and Transformers. Um, living in a small town, our parents pretty much just turned us loose. We had bicycles, and they would tell us, leave. You know, We'd be off all summer long and right. driving them crazy, and they'd say, go ride your bikes, be back for dinner, and be back when the streetlights come on. Sure. So it was cool. It was, you know, growing you up. Wander, in the, yeah, yeah. yeah, and we also had the desert. Yeah. You know, we roamed all over the desert, exploring, hiking. Sure. Building forts was a big thing. <laughs> um, by the time I got got to fifth grade, I'd actually fallen in with this group of kids, and we, we had a, a club, I guess you could call it. A we had fort actually, building club, yeah. We had a, a fort in this kid's backyard. Amazing. We had a name for our club, which was the Vacuum Club. <laughs> Where the hell did that come from? Which stood for okay. various agents crusading unsteadily under Mongoose. I guess <laughs> Mongoose was our leader, who we I never met. Okay. We, he was like this mysterious figure in the shadows. Sure. But yeah, we all Dude, that's had... That's amazing. We made uh, file cards a la G.I. Joe. I still have mine. Oh. Laminated file card from the Vacuum Club. Dude, that's incredible. How many, like, how many, how many were members? Oh, there's a good handful of us, probably six regulars, and oh. some would come and go. Sure, sure. We Dude, had we hilarious. had a couple of female members. Sure, as one, as one does, where it's like anybody that's interested in building weird forts, like yeah. come on board. Oh, yeah. And we would just, you know, it's funny, I, when I saw that Stranger Things oh, I TV can... show, and the Goonies, of course. Sure, like, sure, sure. But, for you know, seeing Stranger Things, I was like, man, that's my childhood right yeah, there. Yeah, that scratches that itch. You're like, I recognize yeah. that. They're just not calling it the same thing that I called it. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it was fun. Um, by the time I got to junior high, yeah, I discovered skateboarding, and that's kind of when everything changed for me. How did that get – because, you know, I mean, living in a smaller city that's, you know, within shouting distance to, you know, Vegas, like was it – was skateboarding introduced to you via just like friends or like how did that kind of like get incorporated? Yeah, I think like 86, 87 was just like skateboard fever. It was yep. really popular. Skateboarding was everywhere. And I just remember seeing kids skating around town. Sure. Or I would 
see a friend's board, you know, with like a skull on it or a dragon or something. I'm like, oh man, that's this so looks cool. amazing. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I want one. You know, we had like a banana board growing up that we butt board on down the street. Sure, sure. Whatever. But yeah, once 87 was when I got my first board. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I had, I was always active growing up. Sure. Riding bikes. I played soccer and baseball. So skateboarding was just like another activity. Right. But I completely like immersed myself in the culture once I got into it. I found this group of friends that I absolutely loved. Mm-hmm. We were always together. And then through that, you know, just finding out about music. Right. You start reading Thrasher magazine and that was kind of like a gateway into punk and hardcore. Absolutely. And f- further down the rabbit hole of skateboarding. Totally. And that was pretty much it it's so because i mean there are obviously many people that have been uh you know have shared similar stories to you you know from around the country around the world the thing that i always find interesting about the um you know skate culture around that time is because there are people who obviously got into it and got into the sort of you know like i want to become a pro like that that idea of being like oh i can take skateboarding quote unquote seriously but then there are people who got into the subculture of skateboarding where it's just like the um the origin uh, not even the origin stories but just like how these skaters kind of view the world and like how they start to incorporate that into their life from you know the music to you know whatever philosophical pinnings they have like so i i do see this really distinct two lanes that people took whereas like kids are just like oh dude like you know i, I like I, skateboarding and skate culture is cool but like you know i want to become a pro because i want to get sponsored and do this and whereas other people you know that share your story are just like Oh yeah, like that was cool, and I liked skateboarding, but like all this other stuff that they did was so interesting, and you just really dove into that. Yeah, well, I mean, we—I don't know that I ever aspired to be a pro skater. Sure. I mean, we all took skating seriously and tried our hardest, of and course, tried to be the best we could be at it. But for most of us, and me in particular, it gave me an identity at that weird time. I mean, junior high is so weird. That's brutal. Yeah. And you're just looking for something, somewhere yeah. to belong. Totally. And someone to be and a group of friends. And it was perfect. I don't know. I loved everything about it. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely, tr- yeah. You try on all these different things where you're like, oh, maybe I can be like the chess guy or like maybe I could be this person. But then like when you do find that thing that you put on where you're like, not only does it feel comfortable, but like it feels like it's like me. That's when you're just like, oh, this is great. Yeah. And you know, I've, I felt always felt like this. I mean, especially in junior high, I shouldn't say always, but junior high, I felt like this nerd kid that didn't really belong. And sure. You know, there's bullies and this and that. And then with skateboarding, I still felt like I didn't belong. And I felt, you know, sure. there came a point where, you know, people back then didn't really like skateboarders. It's not, it wasn't as popular, you know, it wasn't sponsored by Mountain Dew or Monster Energy. Of course. It was kind of like the, the punks and misfits and totally that's who initially came to it. Yeah. yeah. But I felt okay. Not belonging when I was within this group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You did found your community. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you, you know, to your point, like, you know, playing some armchair psychologists, like you've, for as long as I've known you, you've always been, um, you know, very sincere, but you know, very soft spoken. Like you're obviously not the person that comes into a room and is like, I demand your attention. <laughs> 
You're like, look at, look at Lance. He's over there. <laughs> has that, um, has that always been kind of you as a person where it's been, you know, maybe it's more pronounced over time where you're like, Oh, like, yeah, I was, you know, totally a wallflower in junior high and I got more comfortable as time went along. Or have you always just kind of been that? No, I mean, I wouldn't say I was ever a wallflower. I've sure. always been really friendly and outgoing and always had friends. Sure. And even when, you know, we got to high school and the little factions formed, like the jocks and the skaters, I mean, I had grown up in Boulder City, so I pretty much had the same group of friends and knew everyone knew since, everyone, like, sure. elementary school. So I was always friends with everyone as far as being, I mean, I don't know, even when it came time to do the bands and stuff, like, mm-hmm. I... I never really felt weird. You know how you have like the singers who can never turn and face the crowd. Yeah. I, I just did it. I don't know. I mean, it never sure. was an issue for me. Right. Right. Well, cause you, you, cause I, I think to your point, I mean, what I recognize in you is that there's a difference between, um, you know, like being soft-spoken and confident or being, you know, soft-spoken and just like, Oh, I can't even maintain eye contact with the person, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> and you've never, you've struck me as the latter rather than, or the former rather than the latter, because yeah, you're not a person where it's just like, okay, like, I just don't know. I, I don't feel comfortable in my own skin and I can't, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I've always tried to keep an even keel, you sure. know, like I don't need to be the loud mouth, all eyes on me. No, right. Heck no. <laughs> but I mean, I like to hang out and have a good time too. I'm not of just going to be hiding in the corner either. So. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Yeah. That, that you, you know, you know how to, uh, you know, interact and be social and not just be, yeah, like, you know, this, this complete introvert. Cause yeah, some people, you know, lean more towards that side than the other side and then they don't find the balance in the middle or whatever. Yeah. But and our crew always had those guys too. Or, sure. Or those people yep. that were the loud mouse. And I always felt like I was a good balance for them, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of, yeah. All right. Hey man, hey, like, just time the, to tone it down yeah. a little bit. <laughs> totally. Let's all, let's all calm down. Yeah. 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 Not a, you don't need to be the center of attention a hundred percent of the time. It's fine. Like we all can talk and hang out. Mm-hmm. Today's show is brought to you by, frankly, one of my favorite sponsors of all time, Sonos. It is the unbelievable speaker company that designs every speaker from the inside out. So what is it? You've probably heard me speak about it before, but if you haven't, it is unbelievable what they do. So you can order whatever it is on Sonos.com that you're interested in. You can plug it in and in less than five minutes, you are ready to play whatever music you are looking to play over the speakers in your house. You can have one in the bedroom, you can have one in the living room, and they can all play different music all from the Sonos app. It's awesome. So last night, as an example, my son was having a difficult time falling asleep, put in some bony Bear for him to listen to and fall asleep, and then I could listen to some different music in the bedroom. It is the best, and it is so easy to set up. So I highly, highly encourage you to go to Sonos.com and check out all of their product features because it's, like I said, it's the best speaker that I have ever heard. And they also have this awesome, awesome thing called, it's like True Tune, True Play, that's what it's called. And you can set up every single room where you walk around with your phone, use the microphone, make sure that that speaker is calibrated perfectly to the room that you are setting it up in. This stuff is unbelievable. Sonos is a superior listening mechanism for all of your music. So go to Sonos.com to learn more. I love you, Sonos. So as you started to, like you said, develop your identity, really lean into skateboarding um, and get into the, you know, the music and start to be exposed to like punk and hardcore and stuff like that. um, Did you, did you immediately start to formulate the idea of like, playing in bands because i mean clearly doing like bands and skateboarding like they happen kind of in tandem with one another but sometimes 
that idea takes longer to sort of incubate, you know, like playing in a band or whatever. Um, you know, did that kind of come at the same time for you or did that come, you know, a little bit later where you're like, oh, yeah, I'll play guitar and eventually kind of figure this out? It came pretty early on. Sure. Um, I mean, I remember going to skateboard contests and there'd be local bands playing. Okay. There was a band from Vegas called the Atomic Gods. That Ooh, we, that's we, a good name. It was a skate contest <laughs> at just an elementary school, and uh-huh. the, their band played and really made an impact on us. And I think we realized, like, these are just dudes like us. Like, yeah. We could probably do this. So I think it was about 10th grade. I distinctly remember we were skating, and we all sat down on the curb, and we said, hey, Christmas is coming up. We should all ask for instruments for Christmas. Dude, like, that's a good that's a good strategy. Yeah, and so we just decided right there on the spot, hey, uh-huh. who's going to do what? So one guy said, you know, I'll get a guitar. Sure. Um, this kid, Fred, had just moved to town, and he played drums, so we already had a drummer. Right. So I said, well, I'll ask my parents for a bass. And I got a bass that Christmas, and we just kind of started tooling around with sure. it. And this was still in Boulder City, yeah? yeah? Yeah, this was Boulder City. So we had our, our high school band was called Not For Everyone. That's good. Was it was it the number four or was it F-O-R? F-O-R. Okay, got yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, so we, we played all through high school, the four of us. What and bands were you trying to uh, emulate and rip off and uh, obviously wear well, as an influence? It was... Definitely a lot of different influences as, in the band. As well, yes. <laughs> the, the drummer, I mean, all of us at the time, we had a wide range of influences. Sure. It's funny, you know, growing up on MTV, mm-hmm. we'd come home after school and we'd watch Yo! MTV raps. Okay. And then at night we'd watch 120 Minutes or Headbangers Ball. So yep. we had that on top of the punk and hardcore records that we were getting too. Sure. And just, you know, even in our little group of friends, some guys were really into hip hop or some guys were into metal. And right. we'd always take a little bit from everything. <laughs> sure. Because to me, back then, it seemed like everything was good. And, you know, as a kid, you're just searching for anything. Of course. And everything you can get your hands on. And yeah. it, was so, it was so much more difficult back then. You know, you couldn't just go online and sample songs or go on Spotify and right. check out an album. You had to... You know, your friend would come over and, hey, check this out. And you're like, whoa, you got a record? That's great. <laughs> but, yeah, the band was definitely, there was some punk. There sure. was some hardcore. Sure. There was some metal. Mm-hmm. And we actually had a funk song As, with, with uh, slap bass. Of course. You doing the slap bass, of course. Uh, my best effort at slap bass. <laughs> our, our, yeah, we, you know, we love the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Those first, of course. Those first few Red Hot Chili Peppers albums I still love. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was. <clears throat> it was all just this weird stew. I mean, of most most high school bands existed. You're like, oh yeah, like I like this stuff, but then my friend likes this stuff, so we'll just we'll just try to do it all. We covered Minor Threat, Minor Threat. Okay, sure. And we covered uh, Body Count song as well. Oh, that's good. Cop Killer or <laughs> no? It was the. I don't know if the song was called Body Count. It was okay. off the. It was the. Off the original Gangster Ice T record. Oh, it was sure, like sure. The, your, the introduction to where he's like, yeah, I'm doing this rock band, body yep. count. Right? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. We thought that was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> That's like, so man, good. We loved Ice T. Totally. We're like, man, this guy likes punk too. Like, yeah, this is hard, man. Yeah, yeah. We got, we're we going to cover both these. <laughs> so, yeah. 
So then, um, like, did you care, like, did you care about school? What was like your vision? I mean, obviously you had your, you know, your father's profession of, you know, becoming a corrections officer and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, did you have an idea of like, Hey, this is what I want to grow up to be and do. No, even as a, as a kid, I mean, I never really thought that far into the future. I mean, I was always decent at school. Mm Mm-hmm. By the time I got to high school, all I wanted to do was skate and hang out with my friends. Yeah. So I was kind of on autopilot, but I mean, I was smart enough to get good grades and sure. not put in the put in the effort. But yeah, yeah, and you know, I actually kind of look back on that and think, you know, I should have applied myself and I could have done a lot better. Maybe gotten a scholarship, something like that. But sure. it just wasn't who I was at that point. Right. So. And was your was your brother palling around with like did you guys both dive deep into that or was no, he okay? No, my brother he actually got a skateboard before me in eighty six. He got okay. a, a Tony Hawk. Sure. And I thought that's kind of when I was like, Man, I gotta get a skateboard. Look yeah. at this thing with the hawk skull on there. Totally. And he he didn't last very long. He probably got out of skateboarding within a year or two. Okay. And he was like a basketball kind of like jock kid in high school. Sure, sure, sure. But it's funny we laugh about it because our our little crew of skaters just kind of terrorized everybody. Sure. But he was like off limits. Oh. Like any, if you were related to one of us. Sure. Or, you know, That's the pass, right? Yeah. So he got a free pass and his <laughs> friends hated him because, you know, in the halls at school, we'd always try to be punking everybody. You know, you know yeah. how kids are. Right. Being dumb kids. Yeah. And we weren't like vicious, like bullies or anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But. Causing mischief, right? Yeah, I guess people thought we looked weird or were different, so of they thought we were crazy and scary, right? But you're like, this guy, that guy's got purple hair, man. We got to stay. We got to yeah. avoid this person, and we'd mess with people every once in a while. But yeah, of course, the ge- the general mischief he avoided because yeah, obviously he had the the blood relation made him pass along. Yeah. I mean, I think there is something I think that's so inherently. Um, generational about that sort of like level of high school mischief, whether it's like, you know, and and then you do recognize like when it goes too far, like you don't know the line until you see someone cross it and you're just like, that's messed up. Don't do that. Like, you know, don't like trip that kid or whatever. Like yeah. don't put, you know, glue in this person's locker. It's like, that's not cool. But like, you know, you can block the hallway. Like just, or you can, you know, in between classes you can, yeah, block the hallway so no one can get by or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. We weren't like trying to fight people, but we, right. we were definitely, we had our pranks. Sure. That's for sure. Well, what, what was your what, like top two pranks in your head that you were like, we're, we're pretty proud of this. Oh, geez. <laughs> or one for that matter. I'd, ha- I'd have to think about it. No, that's fine. I that's mean, fine. Like I like I was telling you earlier, we saw that kid drop the bowling ball off the dam. That that wasn't really a prank against anyone. No, but, yeah, but that was a that's treat. pretty epic. Yeah, yeah, I've never heard of someone throing a bowling ball. I mean that that would that could cause some serious damage down below. And we we did circulate this story for the longest time that we had seen a dead body. Oh well, that's part and parcel, especially of like I think in the Midwest and in desert communities, like you you can find dead bodies all over the place. Like that's the idea. And the story got around and got to somebody's mom and she called the police and, okay. and the police came knocking out my door at two in the morning. So yeah, I remember the, the <laughs> cops knocked on my door. Yeah. I heard the knock on the door and my sure. front window faced the front yard. So I peeked through the curtains and there was a police officer standing on my right. porch and I just started running the list through right. the what list in my we, head. Like, yeah. what do they got me for this time? <laughs> totally. And I hear my mom, Lance, you better come out here. 
<laughs> you're like, oh gosh, which what am I? What am, yeah. what's happening now? And the first question was, you know, are you Lance Wells? And, yes, sir. Have you seen a dead body? <laughs> and uh, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, I couldn't hide the smile. And no, we just had to tell them, hey, the story was made up. Yeah, and yes. they, they thought they had their first legit homicide in Boulder City. And yeah, you're like, we had to turn them away. Sorry. Yeah, sorry guys, we're not. Yeah, we really didn't find a dead body. That's amazing. Um, and so as you. Uh, so when did you actually like move to Vegas? Like, was that, that was, was that your first kind of like foray on your own? Like you were moving out or how did that all transpire? Well, as, as high school ended, I was really, you know, really into hardcore, really into skating. Mm-hmm. And I, I just kind of wanted to get out. Sure. And, uh, we had been visiting, we had friends that lived in Phoenix. Okay. One, one of our friends that lived in Boulder had lived in Arizona prior okay so we had this whole group of people in phoenix that we we knew Mm -hmm. and we had been traveling down there to visit them okay like my senior year of high school we started going down there okay and that's kind of when i started going to shows and they had great record stores down there and the skate scene was awesome down there at the time got it i thought well your worldview opened a little bit yeah yeah totally and had become good friends with those guys. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys, Aaron, I, you know, I said, hey, I want to move to Phoenix. And he said, yeah, come stay with me. And so two weeks after high school ended, I was off. I went to Phoenix for the whole summer. Sure. And had plans on moving there and staying there. But I pretty much just went down there and hung out and blew through my graduation money. In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors, Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. And then, yeah, you're like, I got $1,000. This will last me for, oh, wow, okay, maybe like two months. Yeah, yeah with the amount of records I was buying, of course. Not, not very long at all. No, 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 no. It's not like you have the foresight for a, what, what a budget looks like. You're just like, I mean, even though you're supposed to in high school, but yeah, when you're out on your own, it's like, oh, this is a whole different story. Were your parents, like, as you started to kind of, you know, really like get into this stuff that, you know, most likely did not make sense to them, like shows and all that sort of stuff. Were your parents ever concerned? No, my parents were always cool. You know, as long as we stayed out of trouble with the police and we got decent grades, our parents always... The trust was there. Yeah, they always supported us at whatever we got into. That's amazing. They bought, bought me skateboards. They bought, when I wanted the bass, they got the bass. They... 
you know, if I kept my grades up, my dad would drive me down into town and we'd go to Tower Records and he'd say, hey, here's 20 bucks, you know, buy a couple albums or whatever. And they That's never, great. they never asked to see anything. Because most, most people would assume, especially with your father as a corrections officer, it's just like you were living under the strict rule of law and like, you know, not like you say your father would, you know, dissuade you from getting into this. But like, as you start to, I mean, parents are always going to have that reaction of just like, I don't understand this. Like what is happening to my child or <laughs> what are they going to get to? Yeah. And, and especially for being like farmers from Iowa. Right, right, right. A, they were from a whole different time and generation. Sure. And like you said, my dad was a corrections officer, but he was really mellow, man. That's awesome. He never put hands on me, never really yelled at me. I mean, I knew not to mess with him. Right. He, he made that. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I, I knew a distinct line not to definitely cross. Definitely made that clear. <laughs> but yeah, he was a really quiet, soft-spoken guy, probably a lot like me. Sure. Um, and yeah, they were they were just cool. I mean, the minute we did something, you know, I would get into trouble with the police through skateboarding. And the minute that happened, I mean, it was on like, yeah, you're, ground, you're pulled you're in the line. Busted. Right. Yeah. You're, yeah. Give us your skateboard. Sure. You can't listen to your records. And that's all I needed to know. It's yeah. like, I'm not getting in trouble because yeah, it was hell going for a week or two weeks without yeah. those things. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, <laughs> the, the stick was definitely influential. It's like, Oh yeah. Okay. I know. I don't want that again. <laughs> yeah, they were always supportive. And even, you know, I remember that summer that I went to Phoenix, I just, I was completely immersed in hardcore. Sure. And that was pretty much the summer where I decided that I was going to be vegetarian and straight edge. Sure. And I remember I, I came home when my money ran out and I showed up back at the house. My hair was bleached blonde. I told my mom, you know, I'm not eating meat anymore. And they... Probably thought I was insane. Totally. They rolled with it. Yeah. Like, okay, what, whatever he found out there in Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, came back here and just kind of started getting more into the scene here. Sure. Um, there wasn't as many shows here as there was in Phoenix. You know, band, this wasn't really a tour spot no. at that point. So we'd have to travel to California. We started traveling down to, you know, Orange County and L.A., Sure. San Diego area for shows. And it was even harder back then to find out about those shows. You know, we either through, I started doing a zine in the early nineties mm-hmm. and tomorrow's gone right around the same time. So okay. just through correspondence with the zine and the band, you know, we'd get flyers. Someone would send you their zine or a letter and sure. they'd send you a flyer. Hey man, the show's coming up. So right. you just look up directions and you drive and hope the show is hope happening. the show is happening yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and then as we started going down to california and going to like vinyl solution yeah like you mentioned they'd always have flyers for shows in there so we'd go blow all our money on records and then hey there's a show let's go check out the show and totally yeah, yeah. it was yeah you start to be able to inject yourselves into the communities and you start to yeah you just start to learn so much by like getting all this stuff and especially too i think you're because the name of your zine was that Hardwire or was it, what was the name of the zine? The zine was called Help. Help, that's right, that's yeah, right. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, yeah, you did what like five or six issues, or you there did? was four, four okay. issues. That's yeah. what I thought. Because yeah, I mean, I I loved the fact that it was like you know towards because whatever I'm 38, so I started to get into you know punk and hardcore like 95, 96. But it's like the zine culture was still so vibrant then, and people were doing these you know one to three issue runs. But then you also had like you know the people that were in much like slicker productions. But it's like 
that was such a lifeline. It gave you such a snapshot of that, that particular person's point of view, but then they're seen. And then like you putting it out there is going to get that stuff reflected back at you. Like you said, from other scenes and other people who are looking for those other, you know, lifelines of like, Oh wow, there's this zine from Vegas, this zine from, you know, (laughs) this, you know, Louisville or whatever. And like, you start to get, you start to learn more just from those people wanting to reach out. And so it's cool that you started to like be able to put those puzzle pieces together when, like you said, the access wasn't as, <laughs> as, as free as it is now where everybody can learn quickly. Yeah. And I, you know, I always did a local news section in it in every issue of the zine that covered Vegas. Right. But I wish I would have covered Vegas more mm-hmm. because looking back on it, it was so weird and cool. Totally. And, I didn't, I don't think I appreciated it as much as I should have at the time sure. because I was so into hardcore and the bands that were playing elsewhere and of they course. weren't necessarily coming through here. But as I got older and got my musical palette, mm-hmm. you know, was, became more diverse. Sure. I, I appreciate that weird stuff more now yeah, than yeah, I yeah. did then. You totally. Know? Well, yeah, you beca- the, you get perspective on it and especially too, like when you get perspective on something that is so uh, formative, like when you're in the middle of it, you, uh, you know, you're very myopic. You're just focusing on like the thing that you really, really like. Yeah. You can see all this other stuff, but it's just not as meaningful until you look back and you're like, oh, I see. Like, I didn't like that band back then, but I see what they're doing now. (laughs) And like, I'm able to understand it much better. And and it's funny, you know, you go, you go through these phases. Like when I was so into hardcore, it Mm -hmm. was like, I was almost ashamed to admit that I liked things like the early Red Hot Chili Peppers records. Or, Absolutely. You know, some of that stuff you were going to get made fun of if you totally. admitted that at a time. But I'm like, dude, I really like Freaky Style. You're like, that's a great album, man. <laughs> totally. Well, because you you become self-aware to where you realize that like the, um, yeah, the judgments that are placed on you. Because like when you're getting into music, it's context free. I mean, you you know you like the music, but you don't necessarily care where it fits in the context of a scene, like you're just liking it, you know? And so, yeah, then that judgment starts to get placed upon you via, you know, scene politics and the things that are, you know, really, really fleeting. And then you're just like, wait, I shouldn't have like disavowed this. <laughs> like I can say that I like the Red Chili Peppers and yeah. it's fine. You, well, know? It's, you know, it's funny. People would always ask you like, what, what's your guilty pleasure record? Yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, thinking to myself, well, where do I begin? Right, right. I have all this stuff I like that if I tell you, you're probably going to think I'm nuts. Yeah, totally. You're like, or wow. you actually probably like it too, and we'd probably have some common ground. Right, you could have some bonding moment of like, oh, you like that too? Oh, cool, I'm glad you said it out, out in public. Yeah. <laughs> so then, so like you said, the, the zine in Tomorrow's Gone, like, the, you, you know, you really started to, you know, be active or an active participant in like the local scene, you know, put on shows and all that sort of stuff. Um did you notice, like, you know, I guess as you started to get out there more and as, you know, the, the, the scene, as it were, in Vegas started to, you know, whatever, get out there and more people started to become aware of it, um, did, did that become, not even easier, but just did you find it where it's like, oh, now there are people that I have relationships with in Phoenix and Southern California and that sort of stuff. Like, did that start to, I guess, make things easier for you to start to, because it, you always struck me too, is like the, the, I guess the business, quote unquote business person of the bands, you know, and I use that in air quotes, um, like booking shows and stuff like that. So did you kind of find it, I guess, easier because you, you had started to become more active? Yeah. I mean, you know, you become friends with people and get contacts and sure. it's easier to hook up shows or records. You know, we met Eric Z from Element. 
okay. fanzine and records. Sure. Our Tomorrow's Gone, the guitarist, Jeff, he had moved to Detroit. Mm-hmm. And that's how we became friends with Eric Z. And I was always curious about that connection because it, it always seemed weird to me where it's just like, how is that, how is that connection? But yeah. 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 Jeff moved to Detroit and became friends with Z and Z was pretty much all about it right from the get go. He right. heard the demo and was like, yeah, I want to do a seven inch. And um, we had a relationship with him over the years to where Fade of Grey also did a seven inch on his label. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's just getting involved with the scene, the scene, Yeah, you know, becoming an active participant, like you said, and building right. friendships and connections and just adding those building blocks together. Yeah. And did you, um, cause tomorrow's gone, like you said, like you did some touring and playing out or did you, was it pretty, very, very minimal. It okay. was mostly here. We did have a summer tour booked for the summer of 1997. Okay. And the band was, we were kind of just holding it together at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, guys were getting ready to go off to college. The drummer, Fred, was going to art college in SF, and he was going to come back and p- just play on the tour. Yeah. You know, we wanted to do a full tour. Sure. We, we had put a lot into the band. We had done two demos and a seven-inch and played a lot. So it just felt like the next logical progression, I guess. Yeah, yeah, be, yeah. You know, you go through these little steps as, you know, put out a tape demo. Right. Put out your seven-inch. Start to play, yeah, yeah. Start to play out a little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just felt like the next logical progression, and we got all ready to practice and get ready to head out, and two of the guys couldn't do it, so it just folded right then. And, yeah, um, I was actually in the process of moving to California at that time. Oh wow! I, I was that. already paying rent on an apartment in Redondo Beach with my friend Dan. So okay. as soon as that tour folded, I went home and packed everything into my little Nissan Sentra and took off. Head out to Redondo. Yeah. (laughs) Why did you move to California? Just another one of those things. Like when I went to Phoenix, Sure. I was kind of bored with Vegas at the time. Yeah. You know, the scene always works in cycles, like you said, and Mm -hmm. it felt like that like mid nineties era was kind of coming to a close. Like Boba Fett youth broke up. Tomorrow's gone was pretty much broken up, but we wanted to do this tour. Right. The scene was kind of slow. There wasn't that much happening. So sure, my friend Dan from Illinois, he had gotten a job in California and said, hey, I'm moving. Um, I don't know anyone in California. Do you want to move? Yeah. And I was working for FedEx at the time. I said, man, I'll, I'll put in for a transfer, but there's no way. Everybody wants to go to California. <laughs> right. And sure enough, two, two weeks later, my boss said, hey, man. Hey, you're like fine. You're Cali. I was wow. Like, no. <laughs> That's right. I do. I think I because you, you drove FedEx like during Faded Gray as well, right? I think or no? Yeah, yeah. yeah I wasn't wasn't a driver until kind of the end of my UPS days. I worked okay. for for FedEx all the way up until the Faded Gray tour. Sure. The summer of two thousand one, I quit right. to go on tour. Sure. And I knew I wanted to quit and do something else. Right. It but we we reason. did the tour, and I came back, and I got hired by UPS. So. You're like yeah. jumping one shipping company to another shipping yeah, company. Yeah, I think it was like 13 years total in the, the parcel business. Sure, sure. <laughs> in the logistics business. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so then as you started, because I mean, you know, Faded Gray is, is such an interesting band because not only obviously the fact because you guys existed in Vegas and, you know, they're they're between you guys and Curl Up and Die definitely making more people pay attention to the fact that like you can stop at Vegas and have a good show. And, um, 
and because you did hit that mark of being, you know, wanting to be as inclusive as possible, like, you know, from the get go, you know, army of kids, like all of that being the messaging, um, I found it so interesting where it was like, you know, the fact that, you know, Dave Mandel obviously put out your record and brought you guys to, you know, a much larger level, but I'm guessing there was never any intention in your head of being like, you know, cause at that time there was some notion of the fact that you can be a quote unquote full-time band, whatever that may mean. Did you have ambitions towards that at all in your own head of being like, Oh man, I could make like a living off of hardcore or this was just like the pursuit of that logistical next step that you were talking about. Yeah, it was just the next step. Um, we never, we always had jobs and other things going on throughout all the bands we played for. I never, never thought the band would be a full-time thing. And maybe that was part of the downfall of the band is we never committed Mm -hmm. that fully to the band. Cause you, did you only, did you only do one like full U S tour or? Yeah, we did a West coast tour in the winter of 2000 with count me out and death by stereo. And then we did the full U S tour in 2001 with, uh, East coast was striking distance was on count me out and time flies. And then the West coast was time flies and count me out and good, good, clean fun hooked us up with a bunch of shows. So most of the tour West coast part was with them too. The largest band known to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, living in in California for those two years, going to shows was so inspiring and cool and Mm -hmm. made even more friends living out there. But I was still traveling back to Vegas the whole time because I had friends up here and my parents were here and my brother was still here. Mm -hmm. And as I was coming back, I realized that the scene was kind of starting to come back around a little bit. Right. And the guys from Tomorrow's Gone were here and they were still, they were playing music and they said, hey, we have these new songs. Right. Eric Z wants to do a Tomorrow's Gone discography Mm -hmm. and we want to put these four new songs on there. So they gave me the demo tape of the music and I took it back with me and started writing lyrics. And I was like, man, these songs are great. Like right. forget a discography for tomorrow's gone. Like let's, let's do a band, let's, right, let's right. do a new band. There was, you know, the drummer was some young kid named Ryan from this uh, band called far from it. Mm-hmm. The next generation of kids. And I'm sure. like, there's shows going on. There's potential here. Like let's play. Yeah, let's do it. And I was starting to see, a girl up here who's now my wife. So I was traveling, coming back to Vegas more and more and the writing was pretty <laughs> the, much on the, the wall. Pull, yeah, yeah. The pull was coming. Yeah. You know, I had a great run in Cali, but it was definitely time to come back. There yeah. was a lot of reasons to come back. Sure. And yeah, I came back and we started up faded gray and we played our first show. It was around Thanksgiving of 1998. I okay. Yeah. I was actually still living in California and came up. <laughs> came up for the to, show for Thanksgiving, and sure, we played the show. And I found it interesting too because it was like they, um, even though Las Vegas was such a uh, you know a, a a small scene in relation to you know, Southern California and other places that I experienced at that particular time, always coming out here was like uh, it seemed like there was even though there was a large amount of people who I recognized over and over, where it's just like, Oh yeah, there's these 50 kids that I always see at every show, no matter, you know, what I come out to. 
Um, but it seemed like there was, uh, you know, different kids that were, that were attending, like, you know, whatever I w- went to a curl up and die show. And then I went to a faded gray show, even though there was crossover, there were distinct kids that were into both of them. And it felt like, like you said, there was uh, a momentum and things were kind of building to where it's just like, you know, whatever pl- Oh man, what was the name of the, um, the venue that was above the, uh, record store in Maryland Parkway tremors tremors. Yeah. Yeah. But like seeing shows there, it was just like, this is a pretty big space. Like this is like, you know, three, four hundred cap venue. And like people were showing up. Yeah. Did you, um, in a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date in the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I guess like when things were going like that well, um, you know, did you, I guess, did you feel, I mean, because at that point too, you know, you were getting paid money for the shows and stuff like that. Did you, I guess, like the business of the band or was that something that you were just like, whatever, it's a function, but like. Yeah. I mean, as far as like the business of the band, we never had a guarantee. We never cared about any of that. Like we were just stoked to play and we were stoked that someone wanted to put out our records and like we never signed a contract with indecision or element or any of that stuff. It was all just friendly deals. And, um, as far as Vegas, like it was kind of the perfect storm Mm -hmm. here at that time because like you said, with the different crowds, like us being the older, I guess we were like the older kids at that point, you know, we still had connections to the scene before us. Sure. But then there was this whole new group of kids, the army of kids, which is like basically the curl up and die and their whole posse of friends. And we were so stoked on that. They're like, you know, they started going to the shows and they're like, yeah, we found out about hardcore through your zine and through tomorrow's gone. And they had their band, they had a band called shelf life before curl up and die. So that was like my introduction to them. And one of the very last tomorrow's gone shows we played shelf life actually played it. It was in Utah. (laughs) And I was like, man, look at these kids. Yeah, this is awesome. And I'd make little mixtapes for them, and they were stoked to find out about all these bands like Gorilla Biscuits and Seven sure. Seconds. And But then they got Curl Up and Die going, yeah. and then the record store happened, Sound Barrier and Balcony Lights. And that was the perfect storm right there. We had the two bands, Faded Gray and Curl Up and Die, and there was other, I mean, so yeah, many bands right. I could name. Totally. There were so many people in the scene, and then the record store was doing shows, yeah. and that's when it just took off. Yeah. 
because we finally had a place where we could book any band we wanted. The guys at the record store were cool with it. All we had to do was move all the CDs and records out of the way so the bands could play, and it just took off. All of a sudden, Vegas was like a tour stop for all the bands that we loved. Absolutely. Yeah, people, it was so... um it was so amazing to watch that growth, just even as, you know, uh, obviously I was in both of your corners of just being so ingrained with both of the bands and, you know, being so excited that things started to happen for both of you guys. But then watching, yeah, that scene be built of just the kids that were, it's like, dude, why are, that's like, there's like 250 kids at this, you know, balcony light show. Like you can barely fit everybody in there. Yeah, and, we definitely broke some fire codes. Absolutely, for sure. <laughs> but just had like that, you know what it's like when you show up to a room and it's, uh, you know, electric. You can feel the energy. You can feel the enthusiasm. And it's like, and on the flip side, you've obviously been to shows where it's like, it doesn't even matter the amount of people. If there could be 40 people and there can still be an energy in the room. Or you can be at a place with, you know, 500 people and there's no energy in the room. But, like, it felt like every single show had that energy regardless of the attendance. But just because it was that groundswell of interest that there was such a... Um, yeah, it, it definitely reached a fever pitch where it was like, oh, yeah, of course you're going to stop in Vegas. Like, yeah, you, you know, you're on your way to Utah. Like, why would you not play a show in Vegas? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was great. It was everything we always wanted sure. from the scene. And we finally got it. Yeah. And it, it almost felt like all of our hard work had finally paid off, you know? That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, especially, too, because I think that you're – because how old are you? I'm 45. Right. So you're like, you know, because I, I kind of view – whatever the hardcore punk like generationally speaking it's like every four years it kind of recharges i mean i think the people like you and i that obviously stick around longer than you know most normal people do um you know we kind of we, we span generations and obviously you know people younger and older or whatever but um generationally speaking it's like when you know when you go through those those four-year turnovers and you start to see this scene ebb and flow and stuff like that um the ability to do what you're talking about of being able to interact with people who are younger than you and have a positive influence on and, and not like a, Oh, like I'm old. So I know what's happening. So here's these mixtapes because clearly that's not where you're coming from, but just being able to impact these people to be like, yo, I can be, you know, like a, a guide to you in a way to just be like, Hey, here's, here's some records you need to check out. And yeah. You go off and do what you need to, but People don't always do that. No. And I was never that person that was like, you know, well, my scene in the early 90s was the best or, right. you know, I. How come, how come you didn't like, how, why did you, because you see why people do that, but like, how come you did not? You just didn't feel that way? It wasn't. No, I mean, when I first got into punk, I was, I got into bands that I couldn't see mm-hmm. live. Older bands that had already broken up. And I love those bands, and I think they're some of the greatest bands of all time, but I wanted something I could see and touch and feel. Sure. And that's why I've always been into the bands that exist currently, you know, trying to find new bands and trying to find that feeling again. And even with hardcore now, I mean, my show going has slowed down a lot. and. Record buying, I don't just buy everything now. I, I'm a little more selective on what I buy, but I still try to find out about new bands and go to shows when I can. And, right. Um, You're still engaged because there's a different story between people. Like, And you understand why people hit a certain wall, but like, because the older you get, the more um, effort it takes to invest in it because you're pulled in a lot of different directions from familial obligations, work, or whatever else. But like, because you have that intentionality... 
that that clearly in my mind that clearly sets you apart from many people who just run into the wall and are like oh, I, don't I don't know what to do anymore. And I'm you know I'm stoked that the new kids have those bands. I listen to a lot of hardcore now, and yeah, it sounds the same to me as a yeah. stuff that's been happening for years, but. I think it's cool that kids have that. They need to have that. Yeah. They need to have their their own bands and their own scene. And maybe it doesn't inspire me like the bands previous sure. from my generate my generation did, but it inspires them totally. and they need it and I'm glad they have it. Right. So <laughs> Yeah, because it's like what to your point. There's always going to be these, you know, sort of totemic bands and, you know, the, the gateway bands that you get into from, you know, Grill Biscuits, Minor Threat and all that sort of stuff. Like, you know, th- that, that becomes timeless. But then, to your point, when you have that something, that, that tangible thing that's right in front of you, that's going to viscerally impact you in ways that bands that you will never be able to see will impact you, you know? Yeah. And you're never... Like you said, you can't, you can't be so, um, you know, focused on the idea that like, oh, like, because this person will never see this band, like, you know, their experience is less legitimate. It's just like, dude, a kid can be, you know, the <laughs> code orange can be to Gorilla Biscuits, what this 14 year old kid, it's like that. Exactly. That's going to be their experience. Yeah. And you can't short, you, you can't short change that experience. No, you know. As much as I loved the early bands I got into, like Seven Seconds and Dead Kennedys, yeah, all that stuff that had such a huge impact on me, that actually being able to see bands like Unbroken and Outspoken live, right? Snapcase, I mean, those bands just blew my mind, and to be able to feel it, yeah, and see it live, right, is so important. Totally, totally, yeah, yeah. It's just it just becomes so much more real. Something else I've always found interesting about you. I mean, you, you've, how long have you been a firefighter now? Uh, I just started 12 years in the fire service. Okay. And so that, like, that's not a common course for, I mean, even though there are, I mean, whatever, it's like, I'm sure like George Pettit, the vocalist of Alexis on Fire, he is a firefighter. Oh, really? He is. Yeah. He, he, when Alexis on Fire stopped playing shows, whatever, mid 2000s or what have you, like he dedicated himself to that. And he's been a firefighter now for, I don't know, about seven or eight years. Oh, that's cool. Um, but so what, I guess, drew you to that? Because clearly that wasn't like, didn't come from the f- family or anything like that. But, um, you know, how did you get drawn to that? Yeah, you know, you know, like I said, my dad was a corrections officer, sure. but that was not something I ever wanted to do. I never wanted to be a cop or mm-hmm. be any, as much respect I have for my dad. I, that was just never my go. path. That said, I think serving the people is honorable and... absolutely. So, kind of something that I wanted to do. You know, I was working at UPS at the time. Fade of Gray was kind of starting to wind down. Sure. I met a kid who was going at UPS. He was going through EMT school. Oh, okay. And he, you know, we'd have these late night discussions by the <laughs> conveyor belt <laughs> sure. trying to load the trucks. And he was telling me all about EMT school. And I thought, oh, that sounds cool. So yeah. I took my first EMS class and started doing ride-alongs and kind of just, it took off from there. Started really? taking fire classes and found out it was something that I really liked. Because while UPS was a great job. Sure. At that time, I was driving, started driving, and it was cool, you know, being out and about and delivering packages and seeing people, and you got your little family on your route. Yeah. To me, it felt like Groundhog Day because it was the same thing every day. (laughs) And I thought, can I do this for 30 years? Right. And I 
didn't really picture my, I mean, I could have, it would have been a great job and I could have made a great living and supported a family and sure this and that. But to me, EMS and fire was like something different. You just never knew what you were going to get. Right. Every time you went on the call, it was like, well, what are we going to see What's this What's happening time? here? Yeah. yeah. That level of excitement, obviously. And, and I was never meant to sit behind a desk or work in an office. You know, I've always had like warehouse jobs where I've been active and, mm-hmm. you know, done work with my hands. And that's right. also something I enjoyed about the fire service too. Yeah. It's the practical nature of like, oh yes, like I need to figure this, I need to problem solve in real time. I need to do all of these things that, you know, people are problem solving behind desks, but in a much, much different fashion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes there's a certain stress level to it, but I like that. I like the excitement of it. Right, right, right. Um, and so the, you know, I mean, cause clearly a lot of people arrive at that sort of, you know, community service, um, you know, via a lot of different routes. I imagine most people that dig into you and are just like, well, like you played in bands, like what, you didn't know, hardcore, but like, or does that not even come up in conversation? Yeah. I mean, there's not many people no. on the department that are into <laughs> punk and hardcore. And when they find out I'm in a, was in a band sure. and they listen to it, they're like, that's you. Right. Like, you know, you're so chill and quiet. And I'm like, yeah, I got it all out of my system, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. And so I'm sure that they just find it like as a novelty more than anything else. Yeah. But I mean, that's another thing that I think drew me to the fire service was the fact that I came from punk and hardcore and I mm-hmm. had played in bands and listened to these bands that always talked about making a change and making a difference in people's lives. And I found that that was a way that I could do that. Sure. And kind of live up to all this stuff that I right. believed in and said, you know? Yeah. There's a direct correlation between those two. Cause I do think, yeah, to your point there, are so many of those things that are, are just a part of our DNA by soaking in all of the, that philosophical messages and music that we view the world through a, a completely different prism. And it's like, yes, like people do arrive at the same conclusion as what you're talking about of like, yes, the community service, but like the, the way that you approach it is very much just like, like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, I'm able to make a straight line here. Um, whereas most people that would observe it on the outside are just like, I don't get why you'd be able to make those two connections, you know? (laughs) Well, you know, I always wanted to inspire people and even through music and the creative process, you know, doing zines and and the bands, he wanted to make, make an impact on people and make a difference in people's lives in some way. Right. And beyond punk and hardcore, I found that working in the fire service is a way that I can still do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can, you can have those real world implications and, you know, actually make a very, very real difference besides just, you know, playing music on a stage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the last thing I want to hit on was the fact that you, you know, your father, your son is eight years old. And again, viewing the world through a different prism of the fact that you've been raised in this, this subculture, um, you know, steeped in, you know, rebellion and the idea of pushing back against authority and all these things. Um, you, how does that kind of influence your role as a parent to your, your little one where it's like, okay, you re- you recognize at some point he's going to, you know, push back on you and not even from like the, I need to distance myself from my family because everybody goes through that. Um, but you know, d- is that stuff that you, I guess, think about or you reflect on where it's just like, oh yeah, like my, me raising my child has in shades of what my parents had done with me, but then I'm also taking it in this completely different direction as well. Like, you know, how does that all kind of sit in your head? 
Yeah, that, I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, my parents were, they were very stoic farmer types. Mm-hmm. You know, I always knew that they loved me and they cared for me, but they never really expressed it or said it. So I've tried to do that differently. Like I'm always hugging on my son and I tell him every day that I love him and he just rolls his eyes at me now. <laughs> He's like, but, yes, dad. But I, I, right. but I think that's important and that's sure. something that I wanted to do different with my son. As far as, you know, I try to empower him. I try to show him things that he can be into. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a skateboard, he has a scooter, he has a bike. I gave him an old guitar that he can beat on. Mm -hmm. We listen to music all the time. He loves music. He actually told me his three favorite bands the other day, which are Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden, and Kiss. Well, that's great. So that was a proud dad moment. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, I've succeeded in some some capacity. (laughs) So yeah, I just try to empower him. And I think it's important for kids to have something to be into Mm -hmm. and also have friends. So he has his little friends and I try to, you know, have him meet up with his friends as much as he can and play and just kind of let him find his own path. Right. You know, I introduce him to all this stuff and let him kind of gravitate towards whatever he is into. Right. And try to empower him, too, with standing up for himself. You know, I think that's important even at a young age. You know, you see when the kids get together and, you know, some kids, like, punching on him or something, and he's like, Dad, you know, tell him to stop. I'm like, no, you know, you have to tell him to stop. Right. You know, just say, please stop and stand up for yourself. Sure. So just things like that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, th- I mean, those are those are really, um, when I pose this question to people who, uh, you know, have children, like it's something that you, you know, might not spend much either, you know, mental capital on and you're just like, oh, you, like, oh yeah, like that, you know, if you do look at it, you do, there are these things that because you have been, you know, raised in a subculture, you view your relationship you know, differently with the, you know, kids in general, because you are just trying to, you know, expose that, like you were wandering in the desert, <laughs> poking around, building forts and all that sort of stuff. And it's not to say that your parents obviously did not love you, but they were, uh, you know, they were just like, well, yeah, the kids are going to figure out this stuff on their own. Yeah. And I think now parents are taking such an active role in basically like all your job is to show them a bunch of stuff, <laughs> just show them a bunch of stuff. And then you'll see what they actually gravitate towards. And you're like, oh, yeah, you played soccer for a year? Not into it? Okay, that's fine. Like, how about this? You know, and you never know until you actually get exposed to that. And I think that that's kind of a, I think it's a generational shift, but then I also think it's because of the way that, you know, we've been raised in this culture where it's just like, oh, yeah, like you never know what band you're going to be into until like your friend shows it to you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's important. I think it's so important for kids too to find something to mm-hmm. be into like a hobby or totally. an activity and a, and a good group of friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, like I was so lucky to find skateboarding and music and the group of friends that came along with it. I think kids that don't find that they, they're the ones that end up lost and they end up doing drugs or yeah stuff like that because they're just bored. Yeah. Like, boredom takes over. Sure. For me, I was probably straight edge, almost straight edge by default before right. I, I claimed I was straight edge. Sure. I mean, I'm not straight edge anymore, but I was so into skating and participating in the music and being creative that I didn't have time for drugs or alcohol. You know, I was j- just so busy. Totally. 
and I hope that my son finds something like that. Right, that he's occupying his time in a productive manner. And I manner. had, you know, like the friends too, we all watched out for each other and we didn't let it, you know, we saw occasionally someone doing something stupid, like, man, yeah, you know, what are you off. doing? Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, it's the self-policing yeah. of, and yeah. We, we lost some along the way, but of for course. the most part, we were still tight. And That's awesome. I hope my son can find that. Yeah, his little crew. Uh, last thing, will you ever play in a band again? actually still playing in a band. It's more of a project. Okay. Yeah, it's called Remainder. Okay. Um, Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, Shay from Faded Gray plays guitar. Um, Bobby Franks. Yes. Who was in A Faith and Fire. He's doing a record label called Running Running in Place. Place. Yeah, yeah. He did the zine Running in Place. He sings. And um, Mike... He, he played in A Faith and Fire. He was the drummer for them. Okay. And he played, when we did the Faded Gray Nate Fest show, Yes. he played drums. Oh, that's right. That's at right. At that show. So he plays drums and I, I play bass. Okay. So Going you know, back to the slap bass, dude. <laughs> I, yeah, I should buzz. Hey, guys, I got this new song. I bet Shay could play some mean funk. I'm sure he could. But yeah, it, um, it's fun to play. You know, I... I have guitars and a bass at the house, so I'm always noodling around on them. And sure. It came to a point where I'm like, I got like five or six songs here pretty much. So yeah, let's see what we can do with Got that. on the old garage band on the laptop and laid down all the tracks and nice. e- emailed them to those guys and said, hey, would you guys be interested in kind of flushing these songs out and yeah. seeing what happens? And they were all, all about it. There's a little studio <laughs> in town. MDV, it's a rehearsal space where nice. they have like a full back line. So we pretty much just go down there and plug in and play whenever Shay is in town. Sure. He lives in California. That's right. But his parents and his wife's parents are still here. So they're, so always, they're always back up here. here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So whenever he, he's in town, we try to get together and jam. It's awesome. We did a little three song demo. That's right. I remember that. It was a couple of years ago that you Yeah, did, it's yeah. been, I think it was, shoot, 2016 maybe. Okay, sure. I mean, it's very casual. Of course. No, like, yeah. There's no, L- no literal pressure. that yeah. we're quitting jobs and going <laughs> on tour. It's kind of just a little project. and Sure. It's it's super fun that way. You know, yeah. there's no pressure. It's just like, hey, man, I got these riffs or this song. Like, right. And it's it's good. I, I enjoy it. That's it's all fun. that matters. Yeah, we played two shows. Sure. We have like a once show a year schedule right now That's so good, you're man. gonna have to wait till 2020 to see us again <laughs> we already did our 2019 you did your, you did your 2019 show that's fun. yeah you know i wish it was a little more active than it actually is sure we sure ha- we have about nine songs ready to go and i like lo- just i would love to get them recorded and get them out there and yeah maybe do you know we could still do the weekend warrior thing of for course sure. play some play a show a program in fullerton and yeah play a show Dude, in vegas program is like the sound barrier it is it totally and is. balcony lights. It's the exact same thing. And same I can't, feeling. I haven't really talked to Ephraim much about it, but yeah. I know that's where he got the inspiration oh, to I, do that. For sure. It's just like, I mean, you find a space that is centered around a culture and yeah, it's like, it's always, I mean, as long as like people in the area are generally cool with it, it's like, yeah, just try to run with it as long as you can. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. It's definitely the blueprint has existed. So it's like, Oh, just plug it in here. Yeah. I see those clips online, you know, yeah. I follow program on Instagram and sure. they're always playing the bands, you know, little short clips of yeah, the bands yeah. that play there. And I'm like, man, that's so cool. It's that's great. Yeah. Exactly the same. Totally. Cause it doesn't matter. It's like, they're like, Oh, there's 20 people here. It's like, that's fine. Or it's like, Oh my gosh, like the show's quote unquote sold out because we have 70 people here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's a whole, there's a whole new scene in Vegas too. I mean, there's a whole new group of kids and there's some of us older people that are still hanging around and of course. going to shows and there's new bands and 
it keeps going on, man. Yeah, man. It's so cool to see. Yeah, I, I agree. There's, I mean, the scene is smaller than it was during the sound barrier and balcony lights days, but sure. there's bands playing at houses. These kids always find some place for them to play. That's great. I don't know if they're doing desert shows. Maybe, <laughs> I, maybe I should show yeah, maybe, them how to do a maybe you gotta, desert show. Yeah, you got to put a got to put a uh, you know eight page PDF uh, up online. <laughs> There you go. How, how to run? How to run a uh, desert show? Well, it's crazy too because the city has grown so much. <laughs> right, since, that there's that, no, since the mid '90s, and all true. the spots that we had back then are like within city limits now. Like right. there's neighborhoods either right up against them or built around them. You know? Sure, I'll drive around town and all of a sudden be driving through this neighborhood and be like, oh, whoa, you we know, there's the a retention basin that we used to play in. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, you're like, we have to, in order to get, quote, unquote, outside the city now, you have to drive at least an hour and a half. And it's just like, that's a, yeah, that's yeah. it's much easier when it's like, you know, 35 minutes as opposed to <laughs> what yeah. it is now. Yeah. But It could be done, though. Yeah, it can be done. Yes, yes, stranger things have happened. Well, Lance, thank you so much for doing this, dude. Yeah, right on. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Sweetness. Thank you very much, Lance. And thank you to uh, in, for inviting me into your home and hanging out. It was nice. It was a, uh, gosh, was it a Saturday afternoon, Saturday morning? I can't remember, but it was really pleasant and it was nice. And I like to have these in-person chats when I can sync it up and make it happen in everybody's schedule. Because I, I get those requests. People are like, do you find that you can have the in-person conversations easier? And for me, I don't know. I don't, I mean, there is a difference, obviously, but I don't find... That like even people that I have done like Skype conversations with and then eventually had them back like to an in-person interview, I, I don't know, they both exist in their own ecosystem. And I feel like sometimes the uh, the the intimacy of like putting a person's, you know, like voice right into your ears is uh, is really powerful. And there are these times where I'm just like exchanging information with somebody over the computer and we're just really connecting. I don't know. And then also you can do that face to face. So. I don't have an answer. I'm sorry, but I'm just, uh, I want to continue to get the good shows out to you. So, uh, what else do I have to tell you? The guest next week, you know what? I'm going to leave it open-ended because I frankly need to uh, kind of do some editing and splicing and, uh, I need to figure out whether or not I'm going to be releasing one of two episodes. So I don't want to tease that to you. Okay. I don't want to get you disappointed. So that's, that's what we got. But next week it'll be a great show. I can tell you that if the one or two things that I'm going to put out, they both are really, really good. So That's what I got. And uh, until then, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Hi, I'm Esther Dean. I've made my life by writing songs like Fireworks by Katy Perry, Super Bass by Nicki Minaj, What's My Name by Rihanna, just to name a few. And now I'm having an absolute blast sharing some of the knowledge that I've learned with upcoming songwriters on Songland on NBC. I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Songland and Songland's podcast, giving you new insight into the magical art of songwriting as told by some of the best in the business and also the pioneers and the up-and-comers who will be shaping the hits you'll be listening to for years. We have an amazing roster of talent this season. I promise you, you don't want to miss one single episode. Don't miss Songland, Monday nights at 10, 9 central, and join us here on Songland's podcast, available every week after the show on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.